Amen. Thanks so much, Caitlin and Pete. Appreciate it. Well, uh, again, I want to say good morning to those of you who are new here in person or online. And uh, we're so glad that you're uh, joining us for the very, very first time. Before we jump into what we're talking about today, just a quick little plug. As we head into year-end time, a lot of you are making year-end giving decisions. And as we always do as we head into year-end, every fall we ask that you would consider making China Community Church a part of your year-end giving. December is one of our most important months in giving financially. And we've had a great 12 months. I mean, last Christmas Eve, we opened this building. We haven't even been here a whole year yet. And the Lord's done amazing things here. We launched a second service this past fall. We've just done a bunch of baptisms. We had our big biggest core class ever, people looking to join Chatham Community Church just a handful of weeks ago. A couple weeks ago, we did Chatham Serves. We poured out hundreds of hours of good into Chatham County. And uh, one person, we went and uh, took, to, took apart or cut up a tree that had fallen because of the hurricane. She posted on next door that Chatham Community Church had cut her tree for free, celebrated us, which was so sweet. And then someone emailed me and said, I got a tree down, can you help me? We created a monster, Chatham Community Church tree removal, apparently, is a new thing. Chatham Community Church, here's what we're doing, connecting people to God, to each other, engaging our world for good, all day, every day, all the time, all kinds of things God's doing across our community. There's beautiful things, good things, the Lord's at work, and much of it is due, uh, obviously, to the Lord, His faithfulness, our great staff and volunteers, but also your giving. So as you head into year-end giving time, we ask you to consider giving to Chatham Community Church as a part of your kind of giving uh, decisions. Thanks so much for uh, this end of the brief infomercial. This is... Week four of our series, Counterculture for the Common Good. If you are just joining us, what we've been saying is for thousands of years, Jesus' followers have been doing what he told us to do, which is to form communities that live totally different and distinctive from the people around them because they are following Jesus. Sometimes people around them admired them and thought they were amazing. Sometimes people around them just thought they were weird. And sometimes the people around them hated them and tried to kill them, just like Jesus said that they would. But regardless... To follow Jesus means that something about our lives is going to be different from the values in the world around us. Your life, if you're following Jesus, is going to look different from what you see on movies or TV or even on your social media newsfeed. So here's one of the questions. What does it mean for us to be a sort of counterculture, to go against the flow for the sake of the common good, for the sake of loving our neighbors, even if they don't like us, even if they don't get us, even if they totally misunderstand? Stand us. Week one, we hit on the sort of the big idea for the whole series. The core conviction is that Jesus is Lord. And 2,000 years ago, in the ancient Roman world, the phrase was, the motto was, Caesar is Lord. And it sure looked like it. Caesar had all the power, all the, all the privilege. He had the biggest empire people had seen for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the early disciples were adamant that even though Caesar looked like he had all the power, there was only one man that got it raised from the dead. His name was Jesus. And that he was king of kings and lord of lords no matter what it looked like at the time. And 2,000 years later, the line of Caesars, gone. Roman Empire, gone. Church of Jesus Christ rolls on and on and on and on. Because if you attach yourself to the wrong lord, you die with the wrong lord. If you attach yourself to the king of kings and lord of lords who lives forever, you too live forever. And when we say yes to Jesus, just as two, uh, two great girls did earlier today, we say yes to Jesus receiving his grace, his spirit. We attach ourselves to him, and then we say, yeah, we'll be a part of this counterculture community for the common good. And so we're kind of working that out over this course of this series. So today we're going to talk about the, tackle this question. What is sort of the good news that Jesus is Lord? How does it speak to one of the most sort of prevalent problems in human history? And one of the most prevalent problems in human history over, over thousands of years of recorded history is conflict across racial and ethnic lines. This is one of the most pervasive sources of misery. 
in human history. So if the good news that Jesus is Lord isn't good enough to tackle that problem, it's not good news at all. If the good news that Jesus is Lord is not powerful enough to heal one of the most pervasive, painful, horrible sort of sources of pain and misery all over the world, right? Every ethnicity, every country, every culture has had these conflicts across racial and ethnic differences. How does the good news that Jesus is Lord, does it touch this? And if it doesn't, then it's not good enough news. It's not big enough to solve the world's problems. And the New Testament authors were very aware of this. In fact, the, one of the most constant problems across the New Testament uh, church was the Jew-Gentile issue, right? There were Jews who were the first Christians, and then non-Jewish people became Christians. And the challenge is, well, do the people who aren't yet Jews, do they have to become Jews first before they become Christians? And this was the biggest problem in the New Testament church. Every letter in the New Testament deals with the Jew-Gentile problem, what we would call a racial problem, an ethnic problem, a cultural difference. Every single letter deals with this. And if you grew up in predominantly white churches, you probably never heard that. The, the biggest problem in the New Testament is a racial, ethnic problem. And so as our country comes unglued along racial and ethnic lines, we have all this wisdom in the New Testament and the power of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and Holy Spirit. And we have no idea that we actually have the power to heal this problem. Wouldn't it be a counterculture for the common good if we actually could heal racial division? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be a counterculture for the common good? As the whole world falls apart, falls apart along racial ethnic lines, would that not be a witness to how great our God is, how powerful Jesus is. That would be a counterculture for the common good. The New Testament people, authors, disciples, they wrestled with this a lot, but it was also a, a part of the Old Testament as well. On about page 12 of the Bible, God calls a man named Abram. And he says to Abram, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'm gonna make your family great to be a great nation. And through you, all the other nations are gonna be blessed. Abram's family was supposed to be a nation that was a counterculture nation for the common good. They were to demonstrate how different it was to live life under the true God of the universe. And all the other nations were gonna see that and go, I wanna be part of that. They were supposed to be a countercultural nation for the common good of blessing all nations, but it was a hard job. And they struggled, just like all of us struggle, to sort of live that out faithfully. But throughout the course of the Old Testament, you get glimpses of what happens when people actually lived out that calling. Throughout the course of the Old Testament, you get pictures of what it looks like when people who were faithful, true to Israel and Israel's calling. What did true Israel look like? What did it look like really to be a counterculture for the common good? You get glimpses of that throughout the Old Testament. We're going to look at one of those glimpses of this delightful little girl in 2 Kings chapter 5. So 2 Kings chapter 5, a little bit of background. Here's where we are. We're about 850 years before Christ. Israel is a nation, but there's all kinds of like wars and sparring happening. And it's a very unstable like time in history, very unstable time in the ancient Middle East. In the midst of all this, there's this beautiful story of a really powerful general who's very accomplished and has a very, very, very big problem. Second Kings chapter five, starting in verse one. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord has given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. All right, so to start off, a couple things that don't seem to fit together typically. First, Naaman was commander of the king of Aram, the armies of Aram. That's, that's Syria today, right? Ancient Syria. These people aren't Jews. They don't worship the Jewish God. They have their own God. They worship their own gods. And yet, the author of the Old Testament is emphatic that God gave him victory, even though he wasn't looking to God. 
even though it doesn't think about it. In, in, ancient, in ancient Jewish context in the Old Testament, because Aram didn't worship God, it didn't make sense that God would give him victory. But the author of 2 Kings is emphatic that God gave him the victory. Even though Naaman worked hard, even though it looked like Naaman was just awesome, the author says, no, uh-uh, God did this. I've got some really good news for you. Sometimes God works for you even when you hate him. Sometimes God goes to work for you even when you don't care about God. Sometimes God goes to work to you, for you, on your behalf, even when you're not interested in God. Even when you think it's all about how awesome you are. Maybe you are awesome. But maybe, just maybe, there's a bigger story at work. Maybe, just maybe, in all your victories, there's a God who cares about you more than you care about him. And maybe, just maybe, that God will go to battle on your behalf to give you the victory, even when you don't look to him, even when you don't care about him, even when you maybe are running away from him, or even when you hate him. Now, there's another kind of weird juxtaposition here in these first few verses of the story. And that is this, that, that, that God gave Naaman victory, but God also allowed him to have leprosy. Leprosy. Leprosy is an ancient word that just meant any kind of skin disease that was almost always fatal, right? This is a, this is a death sentence for Naaman. So God gives Naaman the victory. He allows Naaman to have leprosy. And those two things don't seem to go, to, to go together either, right? Like if, God, if you're a person who thinks God's favor is on me, should he deliver me and protect me from the bad stuff? But maybe, just maybe, the victories and leprosy also go hand in hand. Maybe all your victories, all the awesomeness, and all the setbacks, all the heartbreak, all the challenges, maybe all that is meant to drive us to the God who loves us, to do what only that God can do, to knit together your victories and your setbacks to make something beautiful. So the victories and the setbacks work together to form and shape in you a heart that is beautiful, strong, the, the, the man or woman God intended you to be, and most importantly, to draw you to a relationship with himself. And maybe this morning is an invitation to you and to me to bring to God your whole story, all the good stuff, all the hard stuff, and so that the hard stuff and the bad stuff doesn't have the last word over you, you surrender all of it over to Jesus and say, Lord God, would you just take this and do what only you can do to make beauty out of even the ashes, even the difficult seasons. Now, for some of us to get to that place of redemption and restoration, it's going to be a bit of a journey. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Naaman as he's going to be sent on a journey to get to this place of redemption and sort of full healing from, from his, sort of, from his uh, sickness physically, but also spiritually. Verse 2, here's, what, here's how the story unfolds. Now, bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would go see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Let's pause here. Let's make sure this is really clear. This girl, enslaved, trafficked, abducted from her home by the people of Aram. She now serves, and the commander of the, of the Aram's armies serves the, 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 his wife. And she hears that Aram, the head bad guy, has leprosy, and she does not rejoice in his sufferings. She cares about his sufferings. Who does that? Who does that? Who doesn't rejoice when their enemy gets leprosy? Someone who's been shaped by God's love. That's who does that. This abducted servant girl from Israel is showing what Israel was always supposed to be, a counterculture for the common good, built her life around the God who is love, which then enabled her to love even her enemies. My friends, what does it mean for us to be a counterculture for the common good? It means that we demonstrate the love of God no matter our circumstances or other people's different commitments. 
To be a counterculture for the common good means we demonstrate the love of God no matter our circumstances or the other person's different commitments. Look, this girl does not share this man's culture or ethnicity. She doesn't love his politics. She hates his politics. She doesn't love his God. She doesn't love his army. She doesn't love that his whole life purpose is built built around building an army to conquer nations like her nation in Israel, to abduct more girls like her to bring them to service. She doesn't love anything about his commitments in his whole life, and yet she loves him anyway. Today in your life and my life, at your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, in Thanksgiving, in T-minus two weeks, there's going to be people. You don't share, your, don't share your culture, don't share your ethnicity, don't share your God. You don't love their politics. You don't love what they built their whole life around. Their whole life purposes are contrary to yours. What does it mean to love them like this beautiful server girl did here in 2 Kings? What does it mean to love them like she does? What kind of work would Jesus have to do to enable you to love the people whose commitments in all their lives do not share anything with yours? That's forging you into being a part of the counterculture for the common good. So Naaman hears that there's hope for him possibly in Israel. So he goes to his boss. Here's how the story unfolds. Verse 4. Naaman went to his master, the king, told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. The The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Have you ever shown up at a party and realized you're underdressed or overdressed? Or just realized that you totally misunderstood this whole party, what this whole party was all about? Naaman goes to see the king of Aram. King of Aram, there's hope in Israel. Someone can heal me. The king of Aram and, of course, Naaman both assume if there's healing to be had in Israel, it must be from the king of Israel. And so Naaman gathers together all his resources, all the money he's got, his clothes. He puts on a show. I'm going to go buy me some healing. Here's the problem. Naaman is loaded up with the wrong resources to see the wrong person, going to the wrong place, using the wrong tools to manipulate an outcome that he can't manipulate this way. Naaman, loaded up with the wrong resources, wrong tools, wrong person, wrong place to try to manufacture outcomes that you cannot manufacture this way. This is where the common culture always goes wrong. This is where the common culture always goes wrong. There's always people in charge, money to be used, leverage. There's always things to be done, right? There's a way this world works. There's a way this world works, and you think, I got to play by those rules. And it's like, it's like this. It's like we're in a big game of Monopoly, and Monopoly money works well in Monopoly. But if you take Monopoly money and take it to the new food lion around the corner, they're not going to take it. You can't, listen, my friends, you cannot bring the economy of this upside-down world into your right-side-up dealings with God and a right-side-up God. You cannot bring the economy of this upside-down world into your dealings with the right side up God. Because God can't be bought. God can't be bargained with. You can't buy a miracle. Every now and then I'm talking with people about faith and God. I'm a, I'm a religious guy and they'll talk about religious stuff. And sometimes they'll say to me, well, God and I have a bargain. And I'm like, I don't know what God you're talking about. That's not the real God. God, good news, my friends. God doesn't make bargains. He makes promises and he keeps them at great cost to himself. That's what God does. And then God looks at you and says, I want you to take up your cross, follow me. No bargain. I died, suffered, bled for you to buy you back from death. Follow me. That's the bargain. And if you try to import you 
manufacturing outcomes from God with bargains or deals or money or whatever else. It's just trading wrong side up and God's right side up kingdom. We see this most clearly with Jesus. Jesus, who becomes king of kings and lord of lords, not through an army, not through a political campaign. He becomes king of kings and lord of lords by laying his life down, surrendering to death before God the Father. Jesus becomes lord, like Caesar, not like Caesar, but like Jesus. Jesus becomes lord, not like Caesar. He becomes it in his own unique way, like Jesus, a counterculture for the common good. So my friends, we're invited to take up our own crosses, follow Jesus, sh to, to shake loose and cut loose from this upside down economy that we might walk right side up before God, with God, in the power of Jesus together as a counterculture for the common good. So Naaman goes, the king of Israel, one healing please, right? Now he's a, the king of Israel is a little bit freaked out by this. Here's how the story unfolds in verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. There have been conflicts off and on with Aram. There have been all kinds of fights off and on with Aram over the years. And now, like, this is just a setup. The king of Israel thinks it's a setup to, for a prelude to war, a ruse. He knows he can't do this, and now he's going to come and attack me. So king of Israel thinks he's being all set up, and Elisha is going to save him here, verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Now, Elisha and the king have kind of an off-and-on relationship. There's conflict, there's, there's a little bit of combativeness occasionally, but, but Elisha throws him a lifeline. Hey, send this fellow to me. He'll see that there's a prophet still in Israel, and along with that prophet, he'll see that there's a God still in Israel. So Naaman rolls over to Elisha, chariots and horses, and Elisha won't even go see him. Did you see that? He sends a messenger out. Ah, go wash seven times in the Jordan River, right? That's how it's going to work. That's how it's going to be fixed. Like, I'll heal you, but I'm not going to be bothered to even go see you. Just go and get washed, and you'll see what happens. Now, this is nothing like Naaman thought was going to go down. Naaman's an important guy. He is important Naaman. Important Naaman gets important people to do important things, create important cool things. Like, this is not how it's supposed to go down. Naaman is an important guy. He's supposed to be greeted and addressed in a certain way. But, my friends, here's the deal. You can't buy a miracle from God. And your status on the pecking order here on this earth does not mean much before a living God who is reigning forever and ever on men. And you can't bring upside down, upside down economy into the right set of dealings with God. So Elisha, the prophet, is inviting Naaman into this counterculture for the common good. Elisha, the prophet, is inviting Naaman to do something that doesn't fit with his expectations. He's going to invite him into a different economy, a different kingdom where God reigns and where there's a different kind of love at work. Here's how Naaman responds. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, stand, call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a huffy rage. 
Many years later, I went on a, a week-long mission trip to uh, just outside of London. Uh, we were working with um, primarily an area full of uh, Sikhs, and there was a church there, and we were working with some missionaries. And so we arrived in London, and I'd been there once before. We're in London. We have about 20 of us, mostly college students, and a few of us kind of adults. I was like, I was like all of like 24, I think. So adults, really. Uh, and we are driving from Heathrow Airport out to the, out to the church. And as I'm looking around, I, I, I see the, the cars and the houses, and everything looks so small in London and England. Everything just looks so much smaller, right? Uh, compared to suburban sprawl in America, home of the Hummer and suburban sprawl, everything in London just looked small. And so I kind of lean over to the missionary, who's like, he's a good guy, about my age, and I say, I forgot how small things were here. About an hour later, we're in this orientation sort of uh, event with the 20 of us, and, and, the, and that missionary is standing up and kind of giving some instructions, kind of orienting us. And he, and he, without quoting me, he says, listen, don't forget that everything here, is, things here are going to look different, but they're normal to the people who live here. So the houses aren't small, nor are the cars small. They're just normal to the people who live here. And he didn't call me out, but he told me to call me out. <laughs> this is one of the biggest challenges of crossing cultures. One of the biggest challenges of crossing cultures is you're going to see difference, right? Things are going to be different. Different cultures, different things. The problem isn't the difference. The problem is when we start to assign value statements to those differences. So to my American eyes, full of Hummers and suburban sprawl, London and the town and the houses and the cars looked small. And I kind of, I kind of critiqued that. I kind of judged it as, oh, everything here is small. And I made that mistake in London, which is one of the easiest cultures to cross, right? I mean, it's pretty similar. I mean, they have bad food, but they speak English, and they're charming and delightful. So, so it's one of the smallest cultures to cross, and I made that mistake there in that space of sort of critiquing difference in a way that was negative. Elisha gives Naaman very simple instructions. Go wash seven times in the Jordan. This can literally save his life. And you know what Naaman's response is? Are not the rivers of Damascus, what's that word? Read it again, than all the waters of Israel. That's the mistake we make. Better. Naaman has the simplest, easiest healing of leprosy ever known in humankind. And his, his pride, his national pride, his ethnic pride, his my place is better than this place pride, is the obstacle, the barrier to him getting the healing that he so desperately needs and wants. My friends, we're talking about crossing cultures, healing a divide, healing a rift in human history that has literally been one of the most single biggest causes of misery in human history, whether it's in America or Rwanda or in Kosovo. It means so much pain and heartache in our world, genocide, all these things that have caused so much death and destruction. There is power in the gospel because Jesus is Lord to heal that divide, to bridge but how do you do it? So I'm going to give you one really practical thing that you can do to be a part of the solution. Under the, under the good news that Jesus is Lord, what are some things that we can do? Let's walk through this a little bit together. A few steps, right? First off of this, first we start with that. To be countercultural for the common good, we're going to have to be able to cross cultural lines and bridge those differences. We're going to have to find ways to be able to do this thoughtfully, well, and gracefully. Because that difference has been the point of so much conflict, right? Where, where all, that judgment, all that judgment of like, my place is better than this place, or how my people do it is better than how these people do it. We engage with difference well from a couple of different postures. First off, we remember, every culture is normal to those people, right? That's what I had to learn in London, right? Every culture is normal to the people who inhabit it. That's a normal thing. But the bigger news, the bigger umbrella is that Jesus is Lord here and at work in every culture. Jesus is Lord here at work in every culture. And because every culture has image bearers, people made in God's image, there are parts of that culture that are resonant and a part of what it means to be people made in God's 
image. And so the missionary gave me a really good prayer to start praying. And the prayer that I start praying is this. What looks like the way of Jesus here? What looks like Jesus here in this place? What in this culture looks more like Jesus than it does in my own culture? In London, when I started asking this question and praying this prayer, I stopped seeing the small houses and the small cars. I started seeing how hospitable these people were. So extravagantly hospitable. We'd meet people on the street, on the sidewalk. They would invite us to their homes for tea. With, like, first time they ever met us. You know what Jesus said? I was a stranger and you welcomed me. It looked a lot like Jesus. My friends, you don't have to fly across an ocean. There's all kinds of sort of cultural diversity in the United States of America, and it's growing all the time. How am I looking for resonance with the way of Jesus, praying the prayer? What looks like Jesus here in this place? Help you, equip you to walk in the power of the Spirit, the good news that Jesus is Lord over all people for all time, and asking the question, Jesus, how are you at work here? How is this place reflective, even more reflective, of your character, your grace. This is an especially important skill for those of us who are majority culture people, right? So majority culture is being white folks. For those of us who are white, well, we, here's what happens because, uh, because we are the, we're dominant culture here and, and things mostly look like us, right? The TV shows, the culture, things mostly look like us and the things that don't look like us, we think are just weird. So white people are normal and other people are different, kind of uh, like different from like us, right? Like we're, we're normal and those other, thi- other, other things, other people, right? Other expressions. Let me give you an example of this. What is ethnic food? You know what ethnic food is? Anything that's not white people food. I got news for you. White is an ethnicity. It's a culture. McDonald's is ethnic food. Say it with me. McDonald's is ethnic food. Now, I don't know if it's resonant with the way of Jesus, right? We can can dispute that forever, right? Is that going to be part of the kingdom of God? I have no idea, but I kind of hope so. (laughs) But McDonald's is ethnic food. And what we're saying here is that like every person, every, every food comes out of ethnicity. Every, every food, there's no food group. There's no food anything. There's no anything that doesn't have some, some grounding in culture. And there's parts of that culture that are beautiful and reflect the kingdom of God. And there's parts of every culture that, God, that Jesus is going to say no to at the end of all things when he is the good judge who actually judges all cultures, all peoples for all time. But every culture has things that reflect the goodness of God. And as, particularly as majority culture folks, we have to be willing to ask the question, what about these other cultures reflects the kingdom of God in different ways, better ways maybe even, than I've experienced in the past? So we look for resonance for the way of Jesus wherever we go because it's out there. And that enables us, that empowers us to sort of minimize some of that judgment, some of that difference that we kind of critique, and then to be able to step into, hey, how can I be a part of what God's doing here in this place? Naaman is stuck how much better the rivers are in Damascus than smelly old Israel. But he's going to be saved again by some nameless servants. Let's keep reading the story. Verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you just go wash and be cleansed? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. His flesh was restored, became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. That's what happens when we're the counterculture for the common good, right? So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let Naaman said, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. 
But may the Lord forgive your servant just this one thing. When my master, the king, enters the temple of Rimmon, that was their God, to bow down, and when he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, because I'm tied to the king, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, said Elisha. When we're willing to humble ourselves, step across difference, ask the question, what's, what's God up to? How is this reflective of Jesus? The, the, the results very often are healing, transformation, change. Naaman is healed physically. Naaman is healed spiritually as he comes to the realization there's no other God in the whole world but the God of Israel. And we say yes and amen. And my prayer for us as a church is that we might demonstrate the good news that Jesus is Lord. My prayer for those of us who are majority culture, that especially that we would be willing to sort of open our hearts and step across racial and ethnic lines, that we might be a part of healing this problem. As our country comes unglued across racial, ethnic lines, my prayer, my hope is we would have the Holy Spirit that reconciles people across every divide, across every challenge, across every division. And my admiration and gratitude for those of you who are not white only continues to grow. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You honor us with your presence. Thank you for how you've been willing to ask this question. How is faith being worked out here in ways that are resonant, that are true? You've been so willing to humble yourself and enter into a culture. For many of you, it's different. For some of you, it's not so different. Right? There's various experiences. But my, my gratitude for those of you who are not majority culture folks who join us, I just want to say thank you so much. My prayer is that we would learn from you how to enter in cross-culturally, how to listen, how to be eyes wide open to how Jesus is at work, that we might learn and grow together. And while we need to cultivate skills, just practical sort of tactical skills for how to cross cultures well and faithfully, that all this operates under the good news that Jesus is Lord. And today, again, as we've done throughout the course of this series, we put a stake down the good news that Jesus is Lord as we come to his table and celebrate communion. This morning, we're going to celebrate communion. And here's, here's the deal. Every 30 minutes, this is the most global event that happens. Most global event that happens. Every 30 minutes, another tribe, another nation, another language comes on board singing these songs, gathering around these elements, reciting these same scriptures. Every 30 minutes, all Sunday long, this, there's this global gathering around this table declaring that Jesus is Lord. And the thing that's going to heal, the thing that's going to heal a divided world across racial and ethnic lines is not more politics, as good as politics can be, not more money, as important as money is. The thing that's going to break the spiritual bonds that have shattered our world across racial and ethnic lines is this body and this blood that we share with almost every tribe, almost every language, almost every culture today, Sunday morning, November 2022. And so we gather around and we say that there is no other Lord but Jesus. There is no other God but Jesus, the holy anointed resurrected one. And in him is the power to finally heal the brokenness along racial and ethnic lines, these lines that have caused so much misery all throughout human history. There's power. There's power. There's power in Jesus to bring reconciliation and healing. Jesus is Lord. And how he got to be Lord led through a cross. And the night he was betrayed, his friends were all gathered around sharing a meal together. At the end of that meal, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The night unfolds like a nightmare, right? His friends are, Jesus is arrested. He runs through a mock trial. His friends all scatter. He's crucified on a cross, a common criminal outside the city walls. His friends live in a fog of confusion, shame, pain. Third day. God raised Jesus from the dead to be king of kings and lord of lords. And how he got there looks nothing like Caesar. 
how we got there looks just distinctively like Jesus. And so we gather around these tables and we say, we want to follow Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be Jesus people, a counterculture for the common good. And so as we enter into our time of communion, uh, the, the band's going to come up here in just a minute. They're going to lead us in some, uh, uh, a musical reflection, invite you to sing along, and then invite you to kind of move to the tables whenever you are ready. The bread is gluten-free. The cup is grape juice. So everyone's invited to come and be a part of it. We invite you to take, to, to take the elements with you back to your seat and then just sit with them and reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus and the power that's available to us in his body, in his blood, to heal all kinds of brokenness. And if you're here today and you need some forgiveness, if you're here today, you need some reconciliation. If you're here today, you need some power in your life, spiritual power, wonder-working power. That power is available to you in Jesus. If you're at home, we just invite you to get some elements from whatever you've got around and then wait and take and eat with us. If you're here this morning, you're not a Jesus person, haven't yet been baptized, haven't yet proclaimed his name, we're so glad you're here. We just invite you to pass on this meal for now and reflect on the invitation. God so loved you, gave his own son to lay down his life to wash away sin, that whoever believes in him will live forever, have everlasting life in his name. Let me, move, let me pray for us, and then we'll move to our time of communion. Lord Jesus, we declare that you are Lord here in this place and in the space. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would awaken our hearts and our minds to these larger realities. We give you thanks for the servant girl in the story who demonstrates what it means to be a counterculture for the common good, who lives out this call to be different, distinctive, because she knows you and loves you. And now, Lord, we gather around this table and around this meal that invites us into the countercultural movement of you, Jesus, the one who laid down his life to be king of kings and lord of lords, to wash away our sins. And, Lord Jesus, for my friends who are here this morning who are struggling, struggling physical illness, spiritual illness, heartbreak, loss, loneliness, frustration, disappointment. Would these elements capture our minds and our hearts and our imaginations? Would they awaken us to larger spiritualities? And would you help us to meet you, King of kings and Lord of lords, the God who broke down every barrier, crossed all barriers, who reconciles all people together in one name, one mighty name under one cross. His name is Jesus, and we gather around his meal now as we take these elements in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.